Clive, thank you for this day, and thank you for uh, letting us uh, all uh, be here last night and sing and uh, sing praises to you. Thank you that, uh, that most of us got some sleep and that please help us to be attentive and to uh, pay attention to Mr. Geary and to uh, take something home from the Proverbs and uh, please help us to apply it to our lives. Uh, please help the study to go well. And thank you for everything you give to us every day. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Proverbs is the uh, compilation of wisdom sayings from God. Now, the first nine chapters of Proverbs, among other things, talk a lot about the value and importance of wisdom. So that we will really pay attention to these chapters that give us the pearls of wisdom. You know, because they are they're so valuable, they're important in our life. There is some continuity, some organization somewhat in these Proverbs, but not a great deal. Maybe because when you're living your daily life, you're apt to need one proverb at one moment, the next moment you may need another one on a different subject, and so forth and so on. I view these proverbs being semi-random, kind of like how life is. And, and, and so often in your life, you know, at one moment you need to, you know, think about one aspect of God's wisdom, and the next minute, there may be some other aspect that's relevant to your situation. Which means that these proverbs may not, some of them you may say, well, I, this doesn't apply to me right now. That's why you've got to uh, store it up so that you can recall it at the moment that you're going to need it. I think that's the kind of thing we need to do with proverbs. Understand them and try to really get them fixed in our mind so they'll help us. We are in Proverbs 13, I believe. And uh, would somebody read chapter 13, verses 12 to 19? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears it, the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. A wicked messenger falls into adversity, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. Desire realized is sweet to the soul but it is an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. Alright, verse 12. What you see is when you can't accomplish your goals in a timely manner, it's really discouraging. It will, it will cause you to lose morale. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Uh, you can only bear discouragement so long and then you begin to to lose uh, your, your zeal and enthusiasm. When you get your desire fulfilled, it's a tree of life that revitalizes, that energizes, that invigorates. And uh, so you might think about that in various connections. Um, I've, every once in a while, I'm going to throw out something, you know, for parents. I don't want you to think about your parents. I want you to think about planning to become parents. You know, some parents always are trying to make their children better by always telling them, well, you could do it this way. You could, you could do this. You could do that. And never being satisfied with what they've done. Never showing joy or happiness with what they've done. Always trying to challenge them. Well, what the kid feels a lot of times is, well, I'm never good enough. I can never, I can never do anything right. Because my parents are always telling me, but yeah, what if you did this? Well, I think sometimes we need, when we're dealing with other people, to let them know that they did please us, that they reached a goal, and that we're encouraged by that. It's true that we always need challenges, but it's also true that sometimes we need our hopes fulfilled. Sometimes we need to see that we actually have reached a goal and that, that, that that's an encouragement. It spurs us on then to reach to other goals. 
Now that's true when we're working with people, when we're working with each other. You know, if all you ever do is challenge somebody, but you never, you know, acknowledge the progress they've made, it can be very discouraging. Comments or thoughts on that one? 13 is one you see so much. The one who despises the word versus the one who fears the commandment. You know, probably we're thinking mostly about God's word, God's commandment. <coughs> And we really need to listen to it and live by it. If we don't, then it's useless to us. And worse, you know, we'll ultimately be punished for despising and not, not listening to the word. And then look at verse 14. What does the teaching of the wise do? Yeah. How much life does it give? A fountain of life. When you think of a fountain, what do you think of? Yeah, just very abundant water, fresh, uh, clear water. Good teachings just give you more and more life. That's why we need these teachings. We need to listen to wise people and the wisdom in God's word because it just it will give us ever-increasing life. And it turns us aside from what? Snares of death. Now, do you notice a difference? Fountain of life, snares of death. Well, obviously, there's a difference between life and death. Whatever di what other difference do you notice there? Fountain of life and snares of death. Fountain seems more appealing than a snare. Definitely. And what else? One gives life, one gives life. Yes, and what else? Fountain is singular and snares is plural. Yes! There is one fountain of life. How many snares of death are there? There's many things that can kill us. There's one source of life. We need that source of life, which is godly wisdom, to keep us away from the snares, the traps that lead us to death. we got to really know God's wisdom because you may be avoiding this trap, but you may be walking right into another one. So just knowing a little bit of wisdom may not be good enough. Thoughts, comments? I don't know, it just really shows the value of putting uh, a lot of stock into the Word. Because right before that it says, but he who fears a commandment will be rewarded. And that idea of fear, as we know, is that, that adamant respect. And I don't think we have that towards the word largely today in the church. You know, when we see something in the word that challenges us, we get our pride and our egos up, and we get upset by it. But really, we need to respect the word so much so that whatever it says, we will do that no matter what. Amen. Absolutely. Other thoughts? It's often something deceptive and attractive. The difference between um, a snare and a fountain, a fountain is more open to the public and it's straightforward, where a snare is, you know, it's kind of deceiving you and telling you something different, and it's not going to help If you set a trap for an animal, what do you usually try to do? Yeah, camouflage it in some way. So the animal won't know it's a trap. Satan tries to do that with us. You know, and so it may look good, and you have to be really wise to see it. Other thoughts? In 15, good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. I want to focus in on that last part, which is something uh, you may have heard before, but this is where it comes from. What, what makes the way of the treacherous hard? Consequences. All right. First of all, there's lots of bad consequences to wickedness. You know, we only look at the fun, but what about the afterward? 
You know, there's always some bitter pill afterwards. What else makes it hard? Well, earlier in the verse it says, good understanding produces favor, no favor from God. Now that implies the way the treasure does not produce favor, but this pleasure. Yes! So you're alienated from God, you don't have God's blessing and, and uh, God's approval. That's hard. What else is hard about the way of the treacherous? All those snares of death in the way. Yeah, it's going to bring you down. It's going to trap you and kill you. What else? There may be some hard things about the way of the treacherous we wouldn't even think about at first. What happens to you? Yeah, Jonathan. Many sins come from, stem from a different sin, so it's always just forms a big snowball thing. So once, most, in most cases, once you start doing something, maybe torn a lie, it's just going to grow from there. That is a good point. Yeah. It's hard because it just leads you. It's kind of like quicksand, right? If you're really treacherous to other people, then you have to watch the rest of your life. Watch your back. Good point. Yeah. How do you feel when you do wrong? Guilt, the guilty conscience, the lack of peace. Now that's hard. You think this is going to be a lot of fun. And maybe it is briefly. And then you start feeling that heaviness and, and all of that. The dread maybe of what's going to happen, of, of God punishing you. There's a lot of hard things. We only, so often people look at, at wickedness and they look at the fun of it. They don't look at the other side. It's really hard doing wrong. It would be nice if we'd think about that aspect of it. Look at verse 16. The difference between the prudent man and the fool. What does the prudent man do? What does that say? He applies what he knows. When, what does he do before he acts? Thinks. He thinks, absolutely. He studies the facts. He deliberates. He, 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 he doesn't act impulsively or thoughtlessly. You know, first he uses knowledge. He finds out what he needs to find out. And then he acts. Whereas the fool does what? Displays. What does display indicate? He shows it off. He shows it off. Like a peddler who, who displays his wares before everybody. If given half a chance, a fool will make a fool of himself in public. He'll show it off. You know, that, haven't you seen that? You see somebody who's a fool, and oh my, they just, they just let everybody see it. What would... What would keep a fool from being discovered? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What if he kept his mouth shut and didn't do anything stupid? You might not know he was a fool. Ethan? You're right. Fools don't do that, do they? <laughs> they don't have enough sense to. So... The characteristic of a fool is he's going to open mouth, insert foot, he's going to do things that are foolish. That's just the way they are. The fools don't have that self-restraint. They don't, they don't realize how dumb what they're doing is. And don't think about fools just in some kind of physical sense. Think about morally. You know, people doing wicked things, they tend to just do it really openly and really show off how foolish they are. Thoughts and comments? And then he comes back in 18, or 17, he talks about the, the messenger. That's a little hard for us to relate to because we don't use messengers very much. We have more direct forms of communication. You know, email or texting or, you know, even we can go see somebody more easily. But back then, without such easy communication, easy transportation, it would be more common to send a message through somebody. 
So what do you want in a messenger? What? Good news. Good news, yeah. But what kind of, if you're gonna send a message by somebody, what, what kind of guy do you want? Dependable. Yeah, dependable, faithful. You know, what's important in a messenger is his character and integrity, because mostly you want him to do what? Get there. Get there and tell the message correctly. You don't want him to get it all garbled, or maybe to just deliberately distort it. If you're given the message, you want it told right. Maybe that's happened to you sometime. Have you ever told somebody to tell somebody something and by the time it gets to the somebody, it's way off from what you were trying to say? You want a faithful messenger. You might think about that in terms of the Lord. What kind of messengers does the Lord want? That's the most important thing. Do you remember 2 Timothy 2.2? Where Paul tells Timothy the things that you heard from me. Commit to what kind of men who will be able to teach others also? Faithful men. He doesn't say commit it to eloquent men. Commit it to brilliant men. No, faithful that's what it really takes to speak the word of God in a helpful way. He wants you to be dependable so that you transmit the message right. He's not too worried about how good a talker you are or how smart you are or anything like that. He's worried that you are dependable and you'll transmit it the same way he gave it. You don't need creativity when it comes to being a messenger, right? So think about us being God's messengers and the main criteria is be faithful. Comments and thoughts on this? Yeah, guess. Yeah, I, I read in history, or I don't know if it was a myth or what, but I heard that this one messenger like ran to, I mean, he was <coughs> given a message to deliver and it was the really, really long way away. He ran the whole way and you know, he got there and delivered the message, and afterwards he just died. I mean, because he was just so exhausted or whatever. But, you know, are we that kind of messenger that will go that far? What is our role as Christians? Aren't we supposed to be delivering the message? What would you think about a messenger? He didn't distort it. He just didn't deliver it. That's not being faithful either, is it? That sometimes maybe it's not that we twist it, we just don't speak it. So God's given it to us to speak, and we don't, we're not being faithful. Other comments? Look at 18. Poverty and shame to him who neglects discipline but he who regards reproof will be honored. That's such a constant emphasis in Proverbs. And you see the opposite results. Poverty and shame versus honor. And what determines which results you'll get? Your willingness to receive instruction. Your willingness to receive instruction and correction. Proverbs just keeps harping on this point. What do you do when somebody corrects you? How do you react? That's the right one. Is that how you react? Who would typically be most likely to give us instruction and correction? Who do you get most instruction and correction from? Parents. Your parents would be one source. Do parents always give godly instruction? No, not always. Sometimes it depends on the parents. Some parents are consistently do. There would be some parents who wouldn't. But if our parents are giving us godly instruction, how should we react? Humility. Yeah. We should be humble. We should accept it. We should embrace it and love it. Because it's such a blessing to us. Who else might give us 
godly instruction and correction. A lot of my peers yeah maybe some other Christians you know do other do your friends that are strong Christians do they ever tell you something you need to hear and how do you react do you, have you ever given correction or instruction to some some peer have you done that before how have they reacted defensive. have they been defensive sometimes no, it depends on the person. Depends on the person. Sometimes they're defensive. Are they? Do they sometimes have a good reaction? Yeah. yeah. If you give correction to a peer and they're defensive, what do you do the next time? Don't say anything. It, it tends to inhibit your giving them the instruction, doesn't it? You tend to, well, I'm just not going to tell and I'm not going to say anything. What if you give correction to another brother or sister and they thank you for it and they act like they really appreciate it? Then what will you do the next time? Probably tell You probably will. Do you need instruction and correction sometimes? Yes. Wouldn't it be a shame if your reaction to that kept it from being given to you? There are people in churches that are just kind of known for being touchy. You've got to be really careful if you're going to say anything to them that's not complimentary because they're liable to get their feelings hurt. They're liable to turn against you and, and you know, maybe even talk bad about you to other people. They cut themselves off from this valuable help. The instruction and correction from others. You know, sometimes some brother or sister will, will tell you something, tell you you need to change something, and really they misunderstood, or really they're just not right about it. But it's really important that you have the right attitude toward it, because the next time they might tell you something you need to hear. So you really need, even if you disagree with it, don't be defensive. You may decide not to accept it because it's really not the best advice, but you sure don't want to make them feel bad for caring enough to try to help you. Because the next time they may get it right and you might really need it, and they won't tell you. It hurts to receive correction, but it helps. Comments and thoughts? It goes back in 19 again to talk about desire realized is sweet to the soul, but it's an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. So, you know, he's talked about in verse 12 this idea of, of the desire fulfilled, and again, it's so good when you get what you're longing for. But, but fools, they never really get their wishes realized because they don't turn away from evil. They are determined to walk down the wrong path. It will never lead to what they're looking for, will it? You know, will a fool ever get the good result he wants out of his foolishness? So he's not someone who can ever find that joy of ultimately achieving what he's looking for. That's one of the things about wicked behavior. It's empty. It's fun sometimes. But there's no real fulfillment. You know, when you get done, what did you have? I don't know. Is, you know, taking extreme examples, it, do some people find it fun to get drunk? Do they find any real fulfillment in getting drunk? Does it really make them a better person the next day? Wiser? And all, no. Do some people find it fun to be sexually immoral? Of course. There's some, there's some physical enjoyment in that. Does it really get them what they're looking for? And does it really provide fulfillment? Or is it empty? And when the relationship with the girl's over, and they haven't, you know, all they've done is given away their virginity, 
to somebody that I ain't even still with. How, how fulfilling is that? You know, that's the thing. You never really get the fulfillment when you're on the wrong path. Because it doesn't lead to the right place. Comments or questions on anything through night? <laughs> Let's look at the next section, 20 to 25. He that walketh with a wise man shall be wise, but a companion of, uh, of fools shall be destroyed. Evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous good shall be repaid. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Much food is in the tillage of the poor, but there is, but there is that is destroyed for lack of judgment. He that is, he that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him betimes. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the belly of the wicked shall want. Okay, <coughs> verse twenty. I think we've thought about that a good bit. Probably heard sermons about that. How would you summarize verse 20? It's important who we surround ourselves with. Why is it important who we surround ourselves with? Exactly. You're going to tend to become like the people you're around. Is that true for you? It's really true for all of us. You know, that's the proverb. He who walks with wise men will be wise, the companion of fools. Well, he often does this. He doesn't say we'll be a fool. He says we'll suffer harm. He goes a step further. He'll be a fool and therefore will suffer harm. So, you know, we are shaped a lot by those around us. A lot of what we do is caught, not taught. <laughs> you catch it from the, the environment around you. you Wise men, wise men surround yourself with wise people. That is so helpful. You want to grow spiritually? Be with the best people. What might keep us from being around wise people? Story? The flip side of the verse. I mean, because people also can read this and know that they need to surround themselves with good people. So people who aren't what we should be surrounding ourselves with may be surrounding themselves with us so that they can become Yes, that, that's interesting. But I think there's another reason why sometimes we don't hang out with wise people, Nicole. Maybe because we're intimidated? Yes. Does that not happen to you sometimes? That you just feel awkward and inadequate because you know you're not of the same quality and so you kind of shy away from them. You don't want to feel sort of condemned by their life. Some people just don't really like to hang out with good people because they always feel dumb. Don't do that. You hang out with people who are better than you. You know, try to let them rub off on you. It's a good idea. And being intimidated and just trying to hang out with the low life because we don't feel so outclassed is really foolish. It's a great... You know, a great proverb to help us do better. Comments and thoughts? Stephen? This verse almost sounds like, you know, that we can't go out and find people that may not be Christians and bring them to Christ. But, you know, if you go back to the Old Testament, you know, I mean, the New Testament that we, uh, you know, Jesus sends, you know, 12, 2 by 2, and finds them people and that kind of counterpoints what this is saying a little. Well, there's a big difference between trying to reach out to people who need help and being the companion of a fool. We ought to reach out to those who need help, didn't Jesus? But we don't make foolish people our best friends and those that we try to imitate. We try to reach them and we have to be a little careful about that. Every once in a while, somebody will start out with good intentions. I want to reach out to this person. Think about what we do sometimes in that. If you're trying to really help somebody who needs help, what would be your first step a lot of times? Comfort them. Okay, comfort them. 
become their friend. And how far do you need to go in becoming their friend before you can help them? Sometimes it takes years and years and years. Yeah, man. <laughs> you got to really become just as close to them as possible. And then one day you'll pull a bait and switch. You know what a bait and switch is? You know, you offer one thing and then suddenly it's like, and here's the gospel. <laughs> you didn't know that's what I was about. <laughs> I'm not sure that's quite the right approach. Do you see that? Look at, look at people like Jesus and Paul and Peter and all that. How good of friends did they feel like they had to be before they could start actually helping the person spiritually? Yeah. Yeah, Nicodemus comes along and says, wow, I'm really impressed with your miracles, Jesus. He says, well, unless you start over again, you won't even see the kingdom. <laughs> you know. Jesus says, give me a drink. And she's like, ha, you didn't need me until you wanted a drink. He said, actually, I got some living water for you. You didn't know anything about. And she eventually says, oh, I'll take some. And he says, go call your husband and come here. She's like, I don't have a husband. He says, yeah, you're right. You had five of them, and now you're just shacked up with somebody. <laughs> the one you're living with isn't your husband. It, whoa. Jesus didn't, I mean, he didn't, he didn't know her at all. I mean, they'd never been to any party together. You know, they never hung out together at the mall. They hadn't done anything. And he just right there is convicting her of her sins. So, be careful about this idea, feeling like, well, unless we get to level X of friendship, I wouldn't want to talk to them about the Lord. I wouldn't want to say anything about morality. I want to make them think I'm just like they are until we get to a certain point and then I can start introducing the gospel. Well, no. You know, can you imagine seeing somebody trapped in a burning house but you're a little hesitant to tell them about that because it might hurt their feelings. So you hang out there with them in the house for a long time, get to know them really well, and, and then finally you say, and by the way, the house is on fire? <laughs> no, doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? So we need to reach out and rescue. We need to be, I'm not saying don't be friendly, don't be compassionate, but don't make wicked people your best friends thinking you got to do that first and then maybe you can substitute the gospel. Thoughts? Yes, Ethan. Going back to um, you saying that surround ourselves with the better people and all, we need to make sure we're worthy enough, not worthy enough to be around someone like that, but to be the kind of person to where we don't cause them to stumble or fall. Good point. It'd be nice if we were the better people that they could hang out with and be helped. We can't expect them to just cope their goodness and stuff to completely rub off on us. We need to be at a level of of spirituality and stuff to where we're going to rub off on them some too. Amen. Good point. I agree. Jacob. Um, no, I think you know, we should definitely you know, encourage one another to you know, reach out to people and then think about Jesus and all the people he hang out with. You know, like the past collectors, you know, the sinners, you know, like the really bad guys. But, you know, I think our attitude should be, you know, like a, you know, the Bible mentions sometimes, you know, we're aliens or foreigners. You know, I think about, you know, you know, a Gentile can the Jews, can the Jews, you know, the, you're supposed to be, you know, you can be hospitable, you know, you can invite them in, you know, try to do good for them, but not feel an obligation to, you know, like go worship with their idols, like, you know, which is one of the things, you know, the Israelites fell upon. Yes. When we're trying to fit in with them, you know, is it really a smart idea to try to fit in with a fool? You know, somebody's doing really foolish things, so you try to, you know, do foolish stuff too, and, you know, that way, whatever. Well, no. And, and again, you know, what do they need? Is it really going to help them? You, you start making all sorts of compromises yourself. Well, how's that going to help them? Then you're just acting like a fool with them. What will help them is, is if you keep acting wisely. You keep doing the right things. Our desire to fit in usually is not be really honestly because we want to help them. 
It's mostly because we want to be accepted by them. Jesus said, I didn't come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, there's a difference between, you know, calling a sinner to repentance and just sharing in his sinful ways so we'll fit in with him. So we have to be careful. Cass? Um, it's, for me, it's so much better to start your friendships with spiritual things that way you can build up from that point. I know some of my friends I started at that point talking about spiritual things when you know, or you're just acquaintances and then it builds up and those are the people I'm most close to. But yet if you just have a friend that you just don't talk about spiritual things and you decide, hey, I'm gonna start talking about them, it's gonna be a lot harder because you've never really talked about that before. So that could probably lose some closeness. So it's way better and way easier to start off a friendship with spiritual things. And, and when you make these compromises I mean, I don't know what all kinds of things you're tempted to compromise with. Maybe going and seeing a movie that's not fit with somebody, you know, maybe going along with their off-color jokes, you know. I, I don't know. Whatever things you're compromised, that's not going to help you at all. Keep your own righteous standards. Jonathan? I think that this can relate pretty well back to uh, verse 14 when we're talking about snares of death because, you know, some friends can be a snare of death to you. And, you know, an example of that, I didn't know about this, but the story of Amnon and Tamar, I just learned about this uh, this week or last weekend that uh, we never, I think everybody knows the story of Amnon and Tamar. But in verse 3 it says, uh, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. And, uh, you know, everything stemmed from him having that friend. And the advice that he gave him, it, it says at the end of the verse, now Jonadab was a very crafty man. So, you know, friends in themselves can be snared. Have you ever noticed that when you hang out with certain people, you tend to get in a lot more trouble? <laughs> you know, think about that. Yes? I think this is easier said than done, though, because to walk with the wise, there are so many more fools in this world for us to become associated with. It's really hard to... to find them and you have to actively seek the wise and you have to push yourself to be with them and not just be one of them as well. Good point. Yes. Patrick. You know, this, I think we intellectually understand how important this is. And the practice of it is something different. I, I know of a situation that is just really good kid. He just is really sincere and really good when he's around good people. Yeah. But in the past year or so, he's gotten mixed up with some of the worst kids at school and, and all these things, and now he's convicted of a felony Whoa. because he made one decision after another to start hanging out with these people who just brought him lower and lower and lower, and it just took him to the very, very bottom. Well, right. You know, the longer we wait to introduce spiritual things in a friendship, you know, friendship is always about like some sort of shared interest. And so the longer you're their friend, the more they think, he's just like me. And, you know, if it takes a long time for spiritual things to come up, they must think, well, this must not be a huge deal because I didn't find out about it until now. And you really dilute your influence when you do that. Definitely. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was talking with, this is, might be helpful. In Brazil, um, there's a, a young man, he's uh, probably 22, and uh, recently he started dating a girl. He's not a Christian, she's a religious person. And um, he really likes her. Um, and he wanted me to talk with the two of them. Here's what she said to me. She's very involved with her religion. She told me, she said, you know, I am talking with him and her and me. She said, I'm really concerned about our religious differences. She said, I don't know if he realized we were different when he started dating or not, but I didn't. And I'm really concerned about this, and I really feel like we need to settle these things before we move forward with our relationship. He's not that concerned about it. He has not been studying with her. He is not, he's been making some compromises with that. And he knew before they started. She doesn't know he knew, but I knew he did. But he didn't want to bring those things up and hurt the relationship. That's really dangerous. You know, we've got to really be careful. You start, you know, getting interested in a girl or a guy, 
that that doesn't have the same standards, but you don't want to talk about that because after all, it might turn them off, and you really like them. Whoa, that's very dangerous because you know uh, a, a close friend of the opposite gender is more likely to influence us than about anybody else. Stephen, I, uh, there's a neighbor of mine. He uh, he, growing up, he was always taught, you know, right and wrong. And over the years, you know, him, he's 56 now, I think. And, uh, here a while back, he was in a wreck. And he realized, you know, he he needs to become a Christian. I mean, he, he, he always did, you know, he always knew what was right and everything. And, and now he's a Christian. And so he he always he used to drink and smoke, but now he just smokes. And so making progress. Yeah, he's making, he's making progress. Huh? <laughs> All right, Jess. That's, that's probably why it's easier to start a relationship with other people, like a girlfriend or boyfriend, with spiritual things, because if you get closer with them, it's going to be harder to talk to them. The more you like them, you're not going to want to talk. That could so be I mean, true too. If you sit down and talk talk about your spiritual differences, and if they you know don't like it, then break up with them and move on. All right. So think about what it says: He who walks with wise men will be wise. The companion of fools will suffer harm. Look at verse 21. Look at the different results of being a sinner and being righteous. In general, it's, 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 the outcome is more favorable for the righteous than for the wicked. Now, that's the general rule, and that's not always true in the moment. Think about Job. But in the long run, who comes out better? The righteous. Adversity pursues sinners. Don't you like that verb, pursue? It chases them down. It'll catch up to them, and it'll bring them down. Maybe they think they're outrunning it, but you can't escape. Sooner or later, the adversity will catch up with you if you're a sinner. And then verse 22. What are you leaving, what kind of inheritance do you leave for your children? You know, well, obviously, you're not thinking too much about that at the moment, but eventually you will. The best inheritance you can leave for your children isn't money. It's the Lord, absolutely, His Word. Leaving a good life, a good name, a good influence behind. That's what you really want to leave behind for your children. It doesn't matter if you've got any money for them. It matters that they've got the Lord from you. And whatever the sinner accumulates in terms of money ends up going to the righteous one anyway. Eventually, he's evacuated of his wealth, and uh, the righteous man gets it. Um, and then I really like 23. 23 is not necessarily an ordinary proverb. I don't know too many like this, but it's so true. It's telling you why there is poverty. Poverty is mostly caused by what? Injustice. Injustice. He's saying now the ground of the poor man, will, it'll, it'll grow lots of food. The problem is mostly injustice. The problem is that, you know, he doesn't get to eat from that food. Uh, there, there's a lot of, there's plenty of food in the world. <coughs> but it's not allocated justly. That's what the problem really is. Comments or questions through 23? Stephen? 23 uh, reminds me of the story of the prodigal son about how he uh, spent all his father's money and came back, you know, was accepted still. Mm -hmm. And that just that one verse reminded me of it. Okay. Other thoughts? Look at 24. You know this one. What's our little proverb based on this? Spare the rod and spoil the child. Spare the rod and spoil the child. Is it really right to spank a child? Yes. Is it always right to spank a child? No. 
What's the difference between right spanking and wrong spanking? Yeah, why you're doing it. Wrong spanking is done why? Because you're mad. You're upset. They, the kid just hurt your favorite blank. Maybe totally an accident. But look at what he did to the blank. You know, or you had a bad day and you're upset, so you're going to take it out of it. There's no value in that. But loving discipline that's for the benefit of the child is the best thing. When you let a child grow up with no sense of boundaries and consequences, it's very cruel to the child. The right thing to do is to consistently, because you love them, spank them when they need it. You know, she's gone on now, but, but Verna McKee uh, was a preacher's wife, really fine lady, and she used to, to say to her children, she had four boys, I think, she said, I'm not spanking you so I'll love you. I'll always love you. I'm spanking you so that other people will love you. <laughs> You're disciplining them so that they will learn to do the right thing and to respect the limits that the authority sets. You know, my pattern, what I tried to do with my children, was to say, no, that's wrong. You're not to do that. And make sure they understood. Make sure it was clear to them. And I pretty well knew it was clear to them. About the time they were able to crawl, stuck their finger in the, you know, where you put the, the cord. What do you call that? Light socket? Outlet. 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 That's the word. In the outlet. And I'd say, no, don't put your finger. And when the child looked back at me, <laughs> and so I would say, especially early on, I would say one more time, look, you are not to put your finger there. If you do, I will slap your finger. Well, the child, of course, any self-respecting child wants to know what he can get by with. <laughs> so he looks at you again, and he sticks his finger there. <laughs> And I would tell him it was wrong. Or he'd start crying, you know. And what I always tried to do was within a very short time, my child was crying, I'd try to pick him up and hold him and say, I love you. And I, I slapped your finger, I spanked you as he got a little bit older, because I love you. You need to respect my authority. That's what God says for you to do. And, and you need to do what I tell you. And so, because you disobeyed me, I spanked you. And I love you. I tried to be consistent with that. I did spank my children because I loved them. There are a lot of times it would have been a lot easier not to. It's, in, it's sometimes inconvenient and it's unpleasant. You know, I didn't really enjoy inflicting pain on my children, not normally anyway. <laughs> you know, but you think, but it's the best thing. Because they must learn to respect the authority, they must learn to obey, and God gave me the job of teaching it. And he gave me the tool of discipline. And so if I really care about my child and want what's, want what's best for him, then I will not withhold the rod. The whole point of spanking is not so much that this hurts so bad that the physical pain is just overwhelming and it's deterring them. I never spanked that hard. You know, I didn't leave a place or anything like that. The real point of it is more what it symbolizes. You know, when my children cried because I spanked them, it was about 10% physical pain and about 90% emotional pain because they understood that I was displeased with them, that they had, they had disobeyed. 
And, and, and you know, that's so much the way it is. I tried to limit the number of disciplinable offenses. You know, if you've got a list of rules this long for a little kid, you'll be spanking him nonstop and he'll not understand anything. So I tried to have a relatively small number of things that I said, this is the way it has to be. And then when I did, to discipline every time. That way the child would learn. And what you would like is, if you've got a two-year-old who's about to run out into the street in front of a truck, you would like to be able to say to that kid, stop right there. And that kid has actually never heard you speak in that tone. You're always more <coughs> calm than that. And they'll do it. They've learned to listen to your voice. They've learned they need to obey you. On the other hand, I remember being many, many years ago in a home. They had about a four to five year old or something like that. It was fascinating. I lived with them for just like a week or two. And it was this game. The kid would do something. Mom would say no. The kid would do it again. Mom would say no. The kid would do it again. Don't you do that. Can do it again. If you do that again, I'll spank you. The kid do it. If you do that again, I'll spank you. That went on several times. And then the kid did it again, and mom got up from the chair, and the kid stopped. And she'd sit back down. And then she'd get up from the chair and take two steps, and the kid would stop. It was this game. It was like a 20-minute ordeal. And the kid knew how close she could get before it really meant anything. Wow. You know. Does a kid have to be yelled at before they'll listen? No. Not if you don't train them that way. If you train them that speaking calmly and directly is adequate, that's fine. If, you're, if, if every time you spank your child, when you say, son, do not do that again, or I will spank you. You can talk in that tone if it's consistent. And they learn just as well as if you're screaming at the top of your lungs. <laughs> Only it's a lot less stressful for everyone if you're not screaming at the top of your lungs. <laughs> God gave us the tool to train our children. Again, think about what you're going to do as a parent. That's what you have to think about. You know, your parents may or may not have done everything the way this book says. You, for most of you, you were raised better than what your parents were. For most of you, that's true. Hopefully, you will raise your children better than what you were raised. Every generation ought to improve in that. I don't care how you were raised. You can forget about that. I want you to think about, this is what I'm going to do with my children. I'm going to listen to this principle. I'm going to love him enough to not withhold the rod. I'm going to love him enough to discipline him diligently. Comments? Jacob. You know, this, you know, kind of a, you know, do not spare the rod. You know, just a whole, you know, I'm not sure you know, how many of us really enjoyed, you know, getting whooped. But, you know, when you think back on it, though, you really do appreciate it. I don't know, it kind of sets the pace or the example, you know, how we listen to God and how we respect Him. Because, I mean, you know, if you go through your life, you know, not listening to your parents, you know, you know, disobey not having any respect for them, it's really hard just to turn around and have like respect for God and obey Him, and especially when we go through hard times. You know, we usually say, you know, why are you doing this, God? And we don't really understand, like, hey, you know, this, you know He's doing that, this for me so I can be stronger and get closer to Him. Very good point. I agree. Patrick? I think a lot of times, too, we just solely apply this to parents and young children. But, you know, this is a principle that you need to have for as long as you have a child in your household. You know, even when they're a teenager, or maybe you're not bending them over your knee and spanking them. Hopefully not. <laughs> but, you know, you need to have boundaries, and, and you need to have clear-cut rules, even for teenagers. And, and, you know, young adults who are still living at home, you know, hopefully you're not as strict as what you are with a two-year-old. But at the same time, it's all, I've seen it very helpful with brothers and sisters who have that clear cut, you know, this is right and this is what's wrong in this household. 
Yeah, I think here he's probably thinking specifically about younger children, mm -hmm. because as you say, you're not going to spank an <coughs> older child, an adolescent, nor should you. That would be humiliating. You'd also don't need to. If you've trained them to obey you, you know, they'll obey you. It's amazing. Children who are disciplined diligently, I, for my kids, by the time they were five or six, I rarely spanked them again. I didn't need to. They learned to obey me. They learned to respect me. By the time my kids were teenagers, there were rules I set they didn't agree with. There was no question about the fact they'd obey me. Now, I also tried to set less and less rules because I wanted them to learn to discipline themselves more and more. I wanted them to get more and more to where they were respecting the principles of right and not just fearing the consequence. I think that's a wise thing for parents to do. So I think this is primary expansion. Other thoughts? Look at 25. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. It's back to that same concept that the wicked never have satisfaction in life. They're always hungry. I'm not talking about physically, but they're always hungry. You know, it never fills them up. As Solomon would say, it's vanity and chasing the wind. You never get it. That's, that's one of the problems of wickedness. It never will fill you. All right, coming to questions on chapter 14. This, is a, lot, this is a lot like the living water Jesus was you're talking about. Jesus was talking about the, the righteous will never thirst again. The wicked will still be searching for it. Amen. Exactly. God's water satisfies. Which is a huge difference. Yeah. And I find it interesting that before the wicked, they're always searching for something. You know, what are they searching for? Really, internally, they're searching for God. But they just refuse. They refuse Him and don't allow Him to fill them up like God wants to. And so we, we really are the only ones who hurt ourselves with this. Most sins, because they don't satisfy, tend to need to be um, increased to provide the same high. You know how drugs are. You know, you start taking a certain drug, it gives you a high, I understand. But the high gradually gets weaker so you have to take more of it. You have to move on to something stronger to get the same high. Because it's really not satisfying. You know if it takes more and more and more to produce the same effect, it's really not doing it. That's true with most sins, all sins maybe, that you know, they're they always kind of empty. So you always think, well, I just need some more. I need some more. I need some more. But the fact is, it's not quantity that's the problem. It's just not going to satisfy you. It's, you're still going to be hungry no matter how much of it you Okay. Going back to verse 24, like some parents, I remember being at one of my friends' house and his little brother is just out of control. I mean, he was throwing stuff at me and. That means out of control. He was throwing pickles and he was just throwing pickles. And, and you know, his, his mom didn't say anything. Like, I'm seriously, like, this kid's getting on my nerves. And, and you know, it's like, what is this kid going to grow up and do if you're not going to tell him to stop anything? I mean, so whole cucumbers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I mean, he has to set some boundaries. I mean, I thought that was kind of ridiculous, just the way he was acting, for no one to say anything. It's so much better for him to have the boundaries and to learn proper respect for authority and proper behavior. Good point. Yeah. Um. I think what this world and this people want in general is to feel satisfied. Um, I, I think in, in, a, in a word and in a phrase, it's kind of 
personifies or, or explains what people want. You know, and they want to feel satisfied. They want to feel this this feeling of you know being fulfilled in whatever way. And so they seek these other things that really, I guess, promise satisfaction in these ways. I think it's interesting that the only thing that can satisfy us is is righteousness and is following after God's way, and it's and it's the feeling that that gives us is amazing, and it's feeling so fulfilled in that. Um, that should really move us to share that satisfaction with the people as well. Excellent point. I agree with you. You know, you're talking about drugs. Now, I think, you know, that I, it's more how you use them. You know, you got people on the street that's using them for all the wrong reasons, but you got people in the hospital, you know, that, like for me, I cracked my head back in the. And, and then we're, we're not talking about those kinds. We're talking about the kind that are. I look at chapter 14. <laughs> chapter 14, verses 